Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm and the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the Excelsior Capital Podcast. Today I have with me Randy Kasslin. Randy advises family offices and institutional investors on their direct investing, fund investing, and fund formation. Years as a family office president, a mansion GP of a venture fund and allocating it to privates for a large multifamily office give him a 360-degree view of private direct investing. Randy, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So we've done a lot of interviews on the show about how family offices are becoming their own asset class, their own organism within this ecosystem of private investing, and in many ways are usurping traditional private equity and venture capital in terms of how they deploy and direct competition with those kind of old line industries. We're going to get into some kind of direct investing brass tacks, but could you maybe just give a snapshot of, of your journey through that space and how direct investing has changed since you've been involved within the family office community? Yeah, great. Yeah, so it really begins and comes back to family offices. I was hired out of B-School to run a family office, and it was a family office of a guy who'd made his money in venture capital. And so I work there really was some standard issue family office design, build, execute. I had to figure out, you know, the overall investment strategy, select and monitor and manage managers to make sure that, you know, things were balanced and rebalanced, and then all sorts of real estate and insurance and other, you know, as I say, sort of standard issue family office things that you'd expect a family office to pay attention to. 
And at the same time, he was and is an inveterate deal doer. So he, he'd drag a new direct deal in, oh gosh, maybe, maybe once a month. And this was not the high point of the accounting staff's day or of the trust and state's attorney's day. And so part of my mandate was to architect a family office that could do the protect and preserve part and do that very, very well, but also accommodate his interests in doing direct deals. And these could really be anything from, from real estate to co-invest to tech stuff. And so that was my initial exposure, both to family office management, but also to the interplay between you know what I what I refer to as protect and preserve, which I, I think is the province of some very smart people who do that protecting and preserving, and then and then this sort of other stuff, the direct stuff that uh, shall we say doesn't always play nice with the protect and preserve. Chapter two of my three-part journey was to co-found an investment firm with that principle. He declared himself to have failed retirement. He asked me if I would help him architect a vehicle to sort of formalize or semi-formalize the, the investing he'd been doing anyway. And I said, yes, sir. And over time, we came up with a plan to you know, come up with a, a strategy and to more formally do the direct investing hire some people, do that all off of his balance sheet initially. And then if we didn't completely screw it up, go to some of the more traditional institutional investors. And so over the course of what had to be 15, 16 years, we did, we did all that. We hired people. We did dozens and dozens of deals. This was largely in early stage communications and IT, but also as communications and IT converged with media and this was, you know, of its time in the sort of 2000 through 2015-16 vintage. And so we did, in fact, raise money from outside institutional investors like BlackRock and Howard Hughes and Lockheed Pension Fund, lots of, lots of other folks. And so really, I, I saw, you know, the, the sort of from the inside, what it means to manage a fund, to raise a fund and to, you know, manage other people's money and to come up with strategies and executions of those strategies that are consistent with what your institutional LPs think you're doing. And that, that will be an important element of what I think some of the family office differences are. And then when the principal finally declared himself to be fully retired, we finished out the fund. I was hired by the chief investment officer of a large multifamily office. The mandate was to rip and replace their exposure to venture and growth. And so I used my superpowers as a, a former GP to find and evaluate, you know, all my my old friends, and to allocate into into venture and growth, really to build a a multi year pipeline of relationships. Because one of the things you don't want to do as an institutional investor is get caught in vintage year risk. And so the goal was from the beginning to create a pipeline that was really looking out five, ten, fifteen years. I found that incredibly interesting, great to have a perspective shift from being a heads-down GP to having to think about my former asset class as just that, an asset class, and one that had to scrap for every available incremental investment dollar, just like everyone else. And so it was a, it was a great chapter for me. And it also, uh, to bring it full circle, put me back in contact with families. And to your point, your earlier point, Really, at, at, I don't know if the beginning, but the early parts of the tremendous ascension of family offices as a force in direct investing. And the way I was exposed to it, I was really working in the CIO's office, but pretty routinely relationship managers would stop me in the hall and press a business plan into my arms and say, you know, I feel like you, you, you might be comfortable looking at this. I'm certainly not. The XYZ family is considering a half million bucks into you know, their son's college roommate's new startup. And gosh, I don't know what to say. And would you please take a peek? 
And over time, it became pretty clear to me, and this is casting no aspersions at all on this particular MFO or others, that these folks are in, you know, really focused on protect and preserve. And they're not trained really to look at direct deals often. And frankly, there isn't a ton of upside in putting one's fingerprints on these things. And there is a fair amount of downside if you recommend something that blows up. And certainly in the early stage, you know, earlier stage things, the likelihood is, is not zero. And so there was a reluctance, an understandable reluctance on the part of some of the folks. And I saw this at many other places as well, uh, big bank, uh, ultra high net worth practices, multifamily offices, et cetera. There was a reluctance to take on these deals, even though they knew this was a client need, just wasn't one they could serve terribly easily. And so that brought me to what I do today, which is to work with family offices on their direct investing or their fund investing or their co-investing. So a little bit of both, you know, depending on the day and on the challenge I put on my former GP hat or put on my former LP hat to evaluate a fund. And, you know, that's that's really the journey to this. One other point, which we can certainly dive into if you want, I do a lot of nuts and bolts, you know, diligence, structuring, taking board seats, a lot of the mechanics of family office direct investing or fund program evaluation. And that indeed is important. That's, that's sort of the bread and butter. But it turns out that there are some squishier parts of the job the intangibles of some of the non-economic motivations that families often have that I think can either get lost or sidestepped in the protect and preserve workflow. And so a lot of what I do is taking, taking a step back, working with families to discern, why are you interested in doing these deals in the first place? And if so, let's talk about that. And then we can talk about building intentional portfolios and diversification and other stuff. So while on its face, my work is you know, very much focused on, let's make sure we're not stepping into something stupid. On the other hand, the sort of planning and the context for doing any of these deals turns out to be more fun things that I work on. So let's dig a little bit deeper there. You talk about the non-economic incentives or motivations behind doing some of these investings, investments. rather. Families are by nature messy relationship-driven, and oftentimes their investments can reflect that messiness of human nature and deals get brought to them through their relationships, right? So how do you structure fencing around that to acknowledge it, bring out the open, and not necessarily destroy that? Because sometimes good opportunities do come across through these relationships, right? But what's best practice there for managing through that as a family office looking to do direct investing? Yeah, gosh, there's so much so much to do there. So I think the highest level frame that I try to employ is to figure out what are the motivations here. And so, you know, most people are not aiming to lose money. So so we can we can we can assume that making money is one of them and that's really sort of table stakes and not that interesting to talk about. What's really interesting are some of the others. And those can range from trying to engage Gen 2, Gen 3, trying to express interests in impact investing, taking advantage of incredible domain expertise, especially a G1 wealth creator may, may, may still have, and networks. So any, any of those things can be motivators that aren't just about, you know, what's the best use of, a, of, a, of an incremental dollar. And so saying, okay, well, if, if any of those are the case, let's talk about what that implies for the kinds of deals you may want to do. 
for the cadence of deal making you may want to do, the magnitude of capital that it may consume or produce, the time it may take, the liabilities it may expose you to, any number of parameters that are evaluated in the context of those motivations. And again, as you you know, as you as you've heard, there's there's not a there's not an IRR or a MOIC in here yet. There's not an efficient frontier. There's not an asset allocation pie chart yet. It's really about saying let's let's really acknowledge, let's honor, let's explore some of these non-financial motivations, and then begin to build from there. Like we often hear when we talk about family office issues, be they quantitative or qualitative, communication and transparency are key. So I think just being open and forthright about these factors, it's not assigning a judgment, but it does kind of help guide you through this process. And so we hear this over and over again, it's better just to be very open when going through these issues. Yeah. Well, and again, not not in any way, I, I try, part of my practice is to work very, very nicely with the protect and preserve folks. And so this is not a, not a criticism of their process, but many of these, many of these non-economic motivations don't show up on the questionnaires, the risk tolerance questionnaires that one, one might fill out at the ingest part of the process. And so bringing them out into the open, really talking them through, sometimes asking questions that haven't been asked before, sometimes asking questions that have been asked before, but in, in new ways or different context can really, really be, be helpful. So oftentimes when we talk about family offices on the direct investing side and their advantages, it's typically patient capital, flexible capital, long time horizon, et cetera. Are there any other unique advantages that family offices have within the direct investing space that maybe don't get highlighted enough in your opinion? Yeah, I think I think so. Uh, certainly the ones you you said, I think you know the the primary difference especially from my perspective as a as a former fund manager is that essentially you're you're not working within the same constraints that an institutional fund manager must work, right? So you haven't made promises to your LPs about what you will do, what you won't do. You can be very opportunistic, very agile. If mispricings or opportunities float around amongst different stages early through late or different geographies or different domains, different parts of the cap structure. These are things that you can go after as a, as a family, very, very typically. And you do that at your peril if you are an institutional fund manager. You know, as, as you know, you raise funds, successive funds, by making promises, performing against those promises, and not drifting. They call it style drift. And if you drift, you cause all sorts of havoc for your allocator friends at the institutions. And so those constraints are real, and they are not constraints that a family office has. So in combination with what may be some pretty profound domain expertise and network, that agility with regard to how much money can be deployed at any time, the stage, the holding period, the geography, this is a real advantage that families have. Most families have that, and most institutional investors do not. So you already referenced the human nature of families and their inherent messiness as a disadvantage sometimes. What are some other blind spots or consistent fact patterns that you've seen where families have a disadvantage within the investing space? Yeah, well, there's, there's a few. You know, one, one is that they may not do direct investing for a living. They, they might be very, very smart, have experienced real success in their domain, 
you know, but, you know, they, they, they don't do this all day. And so it's not, it's not a shocker to think that there are some simple best practices that are, in, you know, are, are deployed by others, including institutional managers, that they just don't know. I think the, the biggest one that I see is, is a lack of intentionality. So very often, and for understandable reasons, a group, I won't even call it a portfolio, but a group of direct holdings will accrue over time. And it'll happen because, the principal will get excited about something and they'll do the deal. And then some time will go by and they'll get excited about something else and do that deal. And before long, they wake up and they've got a, a you know, an accidental group of, of, of these holdings and they might be sizable. And some of them might be amazing. And some of them might be a dumpster fire and some of them might be hard to tell. But the one, the, the common thread is that they were done sort of serially and without a ton of intention and as a result, knowing how that group will behave, having a a priori point of view about how much reserve one might want to hold for any one deal or for the whole group. So this is the primary blind spot that I see is this lack of an intentional portfolio construction or portfolio building such that you can have a point of view or at least an opinion. You may be wrong, but an opinion going in about how much capital it'll take, what sort of behavior it should exhibit, right? Because a portfolio of you know, multifamily units is going to behave very differently than a portfolio of early stage biotech, certainly in terms of cash flows, et cetera. So having intention is really the key thing that I, I see lacking and that, and that I work with, with clients on. And again, you know, once again, these are not folks who need to please anyone else. So we, we don't want to bleach all the fun out of this. And yet there's a lot of benefit to just having a plan before one jumps into these things. So you talk about intentionality, and and really that resonates with both the advantages and the disadvantages, frankly. Let's take it the next step. How do you implement a strategy, either internally or with a third party, to accentuate the advantages and then to to de-risk the disadvantages that are inherent within the family office investing space? Yeah. And so it's a little hard to do in the generic because these things are uh, so situation specific, both with regard, obviously, to the family and their goals, size, intentions, but also with regard to, gosh, what, you know, what, what domain, what asset class we're talking about. And so it's really, you know, to me, hard, hard to, hard to describe at, at a, at a, even a medium, medium level, let, al- let alone a low level, unless we, you know, pick a very specific set of examples. I do think there are at least a few things that are common to most family investment direct, you know, direct investing programs, if you will. The first is, is, is as, I say, as I say, is to understand those, those non-financial motivations and, and really talk through what you're trying to accomplish here. It's, it's almost like a corporate investor, you know, corporate venture capital investors, will usually have dual mandates. One is one is financial, you know, please don't lose a lot of money. Thank you. The other is strategic. And, you know, I think of it very similarly for for families. Now, for a family, strategic may mean impact investing. Strategic may mean intergenerational engagement. It may mean literally being strategic for a still held operating company for which the family is responsible and where it can be a little awkward for the operating company to be making edgy investments, maybe hedge your bets investments about disruptive technologies within that operating business, but for the family to do it may be less awkward. So, so having, having a sense of those motivations and strategies and allowing oneself to figure out, hey, 
what sort of returns am I looking for from this activity? And B, what sort of strategic, you know, what sort of financial returns and what sort of strategic returns? So that's, that's you know, that's to me not half the battle, but a, 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 good, a goodly piece of it. I think, I think along with an intentional portfolio comes an intentional look at any given opportunity. And I find, again, that oftentimes folks will think pretty myopically about the deal that's in front of them, the financing opportunity for a company that's in front of them today, and all the hard work that has to go into diligencing it, figuring out the structure and all that stuff. But it's really important to think about the life cycle of that deal, you know, all the way to exit, what sort of further investment will be necessary, what sort of other dilutive events, including acquisitions, might occur along the way that might affect both the trajectory of the deal itself and also the risk profile and the returns profile of your investment. So thinking ahead about that full trajectory is another, you know, sort of best best practice that that I think can be, you know, can be you can really go to ground on it. So that that's you know that that's one. I think another key one. This is really a tricky one, especially for families who don't do this all day. Is is the fact that you can have many different kinds of co-investor in a deal with you. So sure, you may you may do a club deal with like-minded family offices, and you know them, and you've done deals with them before. That can be you know a place where the least surprises happen. But depending on the size of the deal and the nature of the deal, you could have. Gosh, any any number of different kinds of co-investors from, you know, other family offices, sure, to to OCIOs and regular venture funds and corporate venture funds and maybe endowments or foundations who are doing co-invest with their venture, you know, venture relationship, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds could be any number of of folks in that menagerie, some of whom themselves may be not all that familiar with what they're doing just because they're experimenting or riding the coattails of their relationships. And the reason that I think having a good sense of the incentives and behaviors of those other investors is because those behaviors could be really different. And at different times in the life cycle of a company or investment, and to just think ahead about, you know, is, is my counterpart, you know, in the cap table, maybe on the board, though I don't often recommend that people take board seats, you know, what are they able to do? Do they have any principal risk here? Do they have any agent risk? Do they have career risk when they're making decisions? Are they required to produce any kind of financial return or is it mostly strategic? What is their hold period? What does success look like for them? It can be, for example, just to, you know, for an example, a professional, you know, a private equity fund may be looking to turn something around in two, three, four years tops because they have a fundraising cadence that they're well aware of. And if they don't exit out of this thing, they can't post a win. They can't make that slide deck look, look as good as it could. And so a family, on the other hand, might be able to hold this asset for 10 years, not four. And so having a, a working knowledge of the differing incentives and different behaviors can really be helpful and avoid a lot of surprise. Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Get started by joining the Capital Club, where you'll get exclusive access to alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, and an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals. You can sign up by going to our website at www.excelsiorgp.com. So it, it sounds like best practice, ideally, would be marrying some of these advantages that come 
from having this pool of capital that's patient, long-term, flexible, but the discipline of more traditional private equity institutional GP investment management team, right? Yes. Yes. And that, you know, it's aspirational. I certainly wouldn't want to ascribe too much credit to my brethren in the institutional fund manager world. But indeed, you know, there are best practices for a reason and they can be adopted by families. And I guess the key, I mean, to your point is how do you integrate those best practices, whatever they are, whatever's relevant to the family or the domain, how do you integrate them without undermining the very advantages that the families have, right? So the last thing in the world you want to do is is decide a priori that you've got some rigid investment framework and you're only going to do this, that, and the other thing, and you're not going to, you know, all these other areas are no-fly zones. Well, that's great. That might look very disciplined and be very disciplined. But if one of your advantages is that you can you can go to the earliest stages while mispricings are down there and late-stage investors who are dogmatic about being late-stage investors can't follow you. So you want to use that flexibility to your advantage and not undercut it with a perhaps arbitrary set of rules and regs for your own investing. Now, having said that, you know, it stands to reason that the number of reps you get in a domain or in a stage or in a geography really benefit you. And so if you do have some consistency in your investing, you're going to get better at it in those areas. And maybe another thing we haven't really talked about is deal sourcing. This is a, you know, I think there's a lot of families for understandable reasons have an inferiority complex about the deals that they can and do see. Some of it is that families are understandably careful about what sort of a public presence they have or don't have. And as such, it's really hard for co-investors or companies to even find you, much less understand what you do. So uh, if you develop a reputation amongst your co-investors, including entrepreneurs, for being good at a certain area, whether it's a stage or a domain, people will seek you out and, and you'll have you know the sort of the, the pick of the litter. And so there are advantages to, to consistency in terms of reps and learning, as well as in developing a reputation and deal flow sourcing. Do you think it's possible for a family office to do this the quote unquote right way without having a professional third party involved? Well, it depends what you mean. Certainly, I'm a professional third party, so it's in my interest to say <laughs> it's helpful. Uh, Talk your but, own book, yeah. But only having having been, you know, on uh, like all sides of this equation, I think I think the, the the short answer is yes, of course. I think families can get very very good at this, and there are some families who are extremely good at it. I think the tension, if you will, between Having a, an in-house capability and having access to resources that can help you be smart is one that families should think a lot about. In other words, if you hire somebody to do all your XYZ deals and they're down there in that office down the hall and they're working on XYZ deals all day, well, guess what they show up with every Monday in the staff meeting? You know, they've got another XYZ deal. And that's, and that's great. If that's where the family wants to go strategically, then, then building that in-house capability makes all kinds of sense. On the other hand, if a family is exploring different areas, including all of direct investing or co-investing with, with funds, yeah, you know, maybe maybe you don't want to hire somebody yet or a capability yet. Maybe maybe you maybe you try to you know, avail yourself of outside talent until you develop a stronger point of view about that activity. So I think merely thinking about it that way, about whether we should have an in-house resource or not, you know, is half the battle. 
so the cost of of operating a single family office has gone up precipitously over the last 10 to 20 years the aum necessary the the operational the regulatory risk the cyber risk etc cetera, etc cetera, mm. which has really led to a prevalence of multifamily offices mm-hmm. and i think this is a trend that will continue are there any specific comments you'd like to make within the multifamily office direct investing space that would kind of bolt on to the conversation we're having with single family offices? Sure. Yeah. And and again, you know, I, I don't work with one right now, so I'll be judicious in my commentary. I think I think they perform an incredibly important service because there really there really are a number of really excellent reasons for families to decide not to stand up their own family office. There are also great reasons to do so. So I think MFOs fill an important they they fill an important need. I think one area that a couple areas that I see as relevant to this conversation, you know, one one is 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 what I mentioned earlier. You know, sort of my genesis story was was noticing a sort of consistent blind spot at the big bank ultra high net worth practices and elsewhere to deal with direct investments for their families. Some of it's regulatory, right? Depending on how you're regulated as as an RIA or not, you 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 really have to be ultra careful about what you quote unquote recommend. And so that's that's one issue. I think one of the biggest and therefore I think I think for families to do their own thinking about why they're doing direct deals, how they do direct deals is is really important because they may they may get varying levels of support from their multifamily office in this in this area. I think the other thing that's a real overlap is generational transfer or just generations. I don't think it's a secret that a lot of wealth management firms have difficulty retaining business as generations switch over. And I also think it's true that younger generations are more interested in direct investing. And so I think for you know, for advisors to remain relevant and helpful to families means they must remain relevant and helpful, not just to the current gen, but to the next gen, maybe the gen after that. You got to kind of go to go where the puck is going. And that is not easy in a regulated business. And it's not easy given how, you know, intensely focused on relationships this work is. And you want to serve, you know, the folks who are cutting the check today. So I, I see direct investing as a a pretty big part of the tectonic shift in in how family office work is done and how MFOs serve families and you know and without making any gross claims about you know how many next gens want to do direct deals I, I think it's probably pretty true that more next gens want to do more direct deals and maybe even more do them for non financial reasons I think having you know acknowledging that having a point of view about that and being helpful to those next gens to maybe even learn about or explore what it means to express those interests through direct investments or co-investments. It just feels like a smart client retention strategy to me, at least. Yeah. I mean, I think access to alternatives and direct investing is no longer a nice to have, it's a need to have for multifamily office platforms. Yeah, that's right. And I think the trends are all going going in the right way in the sense that we're increasingly seeing vehicles that were heretofore available only to ultra, ultra high net worth. It's hard to use the word down market in this context, but, you know, coming downstream a bit to make them more accessible and, and getting, you know, wholesaled by some of the 
the bigger wealth management shops. So I think I think the trend is definitely that alternatives are increasingly accessible to families of of many many sizes. You know that does not equal uh, all families of all sizes should do direct deals. But what I think it does mean is that if you have more and more exposure to alternatives through your protect and preserve advisors, you may have more and more opportunity to do co-investments. And co-investments can be a bit of a gateway drug to direct deals. And as you do more co-investments, then maybe you consider doing a direct or three or five. And that's really when what I do, I think, kicks in. Because again, you know, a one-off or, you know, onesie, twosie, whatever, it's not going to change anybody's life. But the minute you, 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 you have a portfolio of any size, it does matter. In fact, I, I had one I had one client who is a hedge fund manager who woke up one morning and I think he had 19, 19 direct investments. And he called me. He's like, oh my goodness, I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure when I did all these and why I did them. Some of them looked really fantastic. A few of them are really in trouble. The others, I really don't have any idea. I'm not entirely sure I've told my wife about all of them. And oh my goodness, can you can you help me, you know, sort of parse this? accidental group of things. And so this was, a, you know, in, in some ways, a nice problem to have because a few of his deals really were fantastic. But he was wholly unprepared to answer questions to his advisors about what this group of now material assets might behave like in terms of risk and reward, cash flow. He certainly wasn't sure what sort of additional support the companies that he was invested in, what they might need, and he definitely didn't know whether he wanted to provide that additional support. So there was just a ton of what to me was very low-hanging fruit, a sort of portfolio construction 101. And we developed a, a, a sort of rationale for doing the triage to work out the portfolio and a framework for on a go-forward basis, thinking about how he would react if one of the companies needed more money or had a liquidity event, et cetera. And, and so it became a rationalization of, a, of an accidental portfolio. And as, as it turns out, he, he didn't really want to create an ongoing you know, portfolio. It wasn't, it wasn't his, his goal to create a you know, rolling venture fund at all. He just wanted to make some sense of what he had and to be able to factor it into the overall asset asset allocation and investment strategy. And this really is a super key piece that, that I, I try to work on. Again, I have no dog in that fight. I'm not, I'm not taking a view on what the family's investment strategy should be, the overall one, what the, what the asset allocation resulting from that is. My only goal is to help characterize the direct and co-investment activities so that they make sense in terms of the overall strategy. And that could, could mean things as simple as, well, gosh, you may not realize it, but you've actually got a lot of exposure to XYZ asset class through these managers. And so just be mindful of that as you're doing your direct investment. Or, hey, this is really a nice counterbalance to that exposure you have in the main portfolio. So that kind of you know play nice with the master strategy piece is what I try to focus on. And because of these blind spots on the part of the families and, and on the part sometimes of the protect and preserve providers, you know, that, that reconciliation doesn't always happen. It's always sort of this ugly stepchild somewhere that they, they kind of hope, hope it goes well and hope it doesn't blow up, and, but otherwise don't spend a lot of time figuring out how it integrates. 
Well, Randy, I think that's a good place to to end <laughs> because that fact pattern seems to be one that I bump up against a lot as a, as a GP myself talking to individuals and families. If that, if that anecdote resonates with anybody, or if you're a family who's just standing up a family office and they're in need of your services, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you and, and learn more about the work that you're doing? Email's always great. I'm sure we can put my email in the show notes. We can. Our, yeah. our Castleman at SRF Management, which is my my consulting company. Yeah, I'll be happy. To, I'll, I'll be excited to to talk to whoever. I, I I learned so much. I have no surprise. Had you know zero engagements that have been a duplicate of any others. Everybody's circumstance is is different. I will point out one other thing, if I may, which is I try to structure my engagements with folks you know, as much around the upside as possible. So I will almost always work if I can, and if appropriate, you know, for some sliver of the profits interest, the carried interest in some of these crazy deals that we're working on. So much like when I was running a fund, you know, my bread was buttered by by having a piece of the carried interest. And I think that aligns uh, aligns interests a little better than just being a, a guy, you know, Dollar dollars for hours, guys. So while there while there often are you know some modest retainers to to do the work, I try to structure things so that I win. I win if the client wins. So you know as as clients think about what they're what they're doing in terms of direct investing and co investing and portfolio construction, you know I'm happy to engage as early or middle or late in that process as as they think would be helpful. Randy, I want to thank you for coming on. I loved your presentation at the conference in New York and this conversation has been terrific and I wish you the best of luck and keep up the gate work and I look forward to staying in touch. All right. Thanks so much, Brian. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.